Well, um, I'm a Harrison Ford fan. One of my favorite movies um, is The Fugitive, based on the television series of the same name, where a doctor is wrongly accused and convicted of his wife's murder. And for those of you who've seen the show, seen the movie, you know that after being arrested and taken into custody, he escapes and spends the majority of the movie on the run from the police, all while trying to gather the requisite evidence in order to clear his name and prove his innocence. Well, in a similar way, we enter this final third part of 1 Samuel, and this whole remaining part of 1 Samuel, all the way to chapter 31, portrays David in much the same light. He is a fugitive, an innocent fugitive, who is on the run seeking to evade the hunt of King Saul. And in Saul's madness, David is seen as a traitor to both Israel and to Saul's own family, a usurper of his throne, and becomes not only an object of Saul's hatred, but also of his murderous plots. Even while David is emerging as the coming king of Israel and God continues to give him success, he's going to be spending the next few years on the margins of society, on the run from his father-in-law, King Saul. He's gone from the peak of promise, being anointed by Samuel and then defeating Goliath, to the depths of danger, being pursued by the present king of Israel and treated as an outlaw every single place he goes. All in all, the writer of Samuel, both 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, spends 20 chapters describing the life of David before he's ever even crowned. But he also spends 20 chapters describing the life of David after he was crowned. That says something. In many ways, these wilderness years, as we like to call them, are just as valuable to God in the story of David as the years David spent as the king. They were no less important. They were no less formative. Taken in the context of the whole Bible, surely we understand the reason for all of this. The cross always comes before the crown. Always. It was true for David. It was true for the son of David. It's true for us. Inasmuch as David is following the pattern of God's dealings with Israel, which he is, and the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, is following the pattern of David, which he is, well, so we who follow the steps of Jesus Christ should expect nothing less. We should expect to carry our own cross in similar ways every day, even as we await the crown of glory to come. We're going to see three things in these three chapters. We're looking at chapters 21 to 23 this morning. Three major ideas, three major themes that show up. First of all, David is on the run. David is on the run. Now, David is clearly on the run in these chapters from Saul. In almost every section of these chapters, he's in a completely new location. I want to show you in just a, for just a moment. First of all, look at the first verse of chapter 21, where we read, Then David came to Nob. Look down nine verses later to 21.10. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish 
the king of Gath. If you look at chapter 22, verse 1, you'll read, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 3, and David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. Chapter 22, verse 5, so David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Chapter 23, verse 5, and David and his men went to Keilah. Chapter 23, verses 13 and 14. Then David and his men arose and departed from Keilah, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. Chapter 23, verse 25. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the, in, in the, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. Then 23, 29. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. David's on the move. He's on the move. Because as we'll see in just a moment, someone is after him. When David was still a part of Saul's court, you'll remember this, I trust, from last week, he managed to evade Saul repeatedly. He managed to evade the end of his spear at least twice, once in chapter 18 and once in chapter 19. He also managed, through the help of his wife, Michal, and also his friend, Jonathan, both, again, members of Saul's family, his daughter, and his son, managed to escape the plots to kill him through the battle with the Philistines and in his own home, and even at the royal table, as we saw in chapters 18 through 20. So David has gotten used to this a little bit. He's gotten used to trying to avoid Saul's attacks. And in most all of the cases in which Saul tried to attack him, David just flew, he just chose to flee. Whether he was escaping from a room where Saul was chucking spears at him or jumping out of a window when Saul sent his thugs to try to capture him or fleeing into the wilderness and eventually into Philistia so that Saul would stop chasing him, David is a man on the run. Now as chapter 21 begins, David escapes to Nob where following the destruction of Shiloh, this appears to be where the tabernacle has been set up. David and his companions need food. We read at the beginning of chapter 21. They're on the run. They're in the wilderness. They don't have provisions. And so they ask the priest for bread. They do so by lying, at least David himself lies, to Ahimelech, the priest, claiming that the king has sent him on a mission. Ahimelech only has the consecrated bread, which is reserved for the priest, which, if you don't understand the significance of that, the the bread in the tabernacle was changed out every Sabbath day. And since the bread was special and consecrated for the Lord's purpose, it wasn't just given out at any grocery store to anybody who wanted to come by and pick it up. Rather, it was reserved exclusively for the priesthood. However, Ahimelech does something very interesting. He gives the bread to David and his men to eat. Now, what's going on here? Well, we can't be sure specifically because additional details aren't given. But I want us to consider at least two things, one less clear and one a little more clear. First, for the less clear, David assures the priest that the reason he's allowed to take the bread and get the bread from the priest is because he and his men are quote-unquote holy. Now, he didn't merely tell the priest that he and his men were clean, ceremonially. That wouldn't give them access to the bread, just being ceremonially clean. People couldn't even come into the tabernacle unless they were ceremonially clean, he uses a different word and a different concept. He uses the word holy. It seems that David and his men have consecrated themselves in some way in preparation perhaps for war, putting themselves 
under some sort of Nazarite vow or something akin to that. And because they were consecrated, or they viewed themselves in this way, as temporary priests of a sort, some say they were qualified to eat the bread of the tabernacle. Well, whether that interpretation is convincing or not, the second consideration is more clear because it comes from the lips of our Lord Jesus. You'll remember he addresses this incident in the Gospels, specifically in Matthew 21. Jesus refers to this incident and he clears David and his men of any wrongdoing. Remember, Jesus was being accused on the Sabbath of eating grain, of picking heads of grain. He and his disciples were eating grain as they were going along on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees came to Jesus and his disciples and said, you're not allowed to do that. And then he says, what about David when he was in the wilderness? He wasn't called wrong for taking the bread that was in the tabernacle. So he seems to indicate that David, as the Lord's anointed, was given the bread of the priesthood in recognition of this reality. David is the Lord's anointed. So it would be no strange drift from obedience for the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was Lord of the Sabbath, as he said, the Lord's anointed, to pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath. Remember that one of the signs that Saul was God's anointed was that he was given bread in 1 Samuel chapter 10. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, we read, Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. So just as Saul received bread as part of his anointing, so David seems to receive bread from a priest as part of his anointing as well. Well, much like Israel before him, this isn't even the complete picture of the story. What's happening? Have you ever heard in the Bible so far of bread being provided by God to his people in the wilderness? Well, before David is to inherit the promised land of the throne of Israel, he had to first go through the experience in the wilderness which is what he's currently experiencing. And just as Israel was pursued by Pharaoh, so David is being pursued by a Pharaoh-like person in Saul with an equally hard heart. Just as the Lord provided bread for Israel in the wilderness, so now he is providing bread for David in the wilderness. And just as David followed the pattern of Israel, so we see in the life of Jesus his following of the pattern of David. Remember, Jesus grew up in the northern town of Nazareth. We could call it The wilderness, even though it was just a small town, but it was far away from the centers of power and wealth. It was on the outskirts of Israel. So for three years, he had no home. Foxes had holes, birds of the air had nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Now he did have places he slept. Clearly, he stayed in homes. Mary, Martha often provided, Lazarus often provided him shelter, other Disciples did as well, but he didn't own a home himself. And all the while, as Jesus is going about his ministry, the leadership of Israel is in hot pursuit of him. All these things meant that much like many thought of David, the Lord's anointed didn't look like much of a king. So how did David come to the throne? By spending years living on the margins, 
no home, facing prejudice, hatred, jealousy, just like the Lord Jesus would later do. If King David came to the throne of Israel this way, and Jesus Christ is the son of David, do we need any further proof that the Christ must suffer and then enter into his glory? As he told the disciples, which they did not seem to understand. If this is how Israel's greatest king came to the throne, then should we expect anything less for the king of the universe to come to his throne? No, because the cross always comes before the crown. So it was for David, so it was for Christ, and so it will be for us. Dear ones, are our expectations calibrated appropriately this morning? Or do you just feel like it's all glory from here to glory? Too often we expect life to be easier for us, don't we? We follow the Lord after all. Too often we expect God to solve all our problems and take away all our suffering when he didn't do that for the king of Israel and he didn't do that for his own son. In other words, we expect the crown before the cross. Glory now without the suffering. But that's not the way it worked in the kingdom of Israel and that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul said in Acts 14.22. In the Christian life, hardship is a must, not an option. The only way to avoid this altogether is to compromise your Christian life at some level. To cease following Jesus. You may be under a heavy load this morning. Boxed in, feel like you're pressed down. But what is a sign to you that God is with you? Same sign of David. Did you eat this morning? Did you eat this morning? Did you eat yesterday at least one meal? God is with you. You need anything else? What further proof do you demand from God than what He has already said He would provide? Daily bread which is what he gave to David, which is what he promises to give to us. He doesn't promise to give us all our wants, but he does promise to meet all our needs. Doesn't God's small provision of daily bread in the midst of your big problems tell you something? Doesn't it assure you that he will continue to provide for you and that he will not forsake you? Of course it does. How was David able to persevere in the midst of all this? Well, one of the things that we see is that he continues to submit to the Lord and seek God's guidance. We see him seeking guidance from the prophets in chapter 22 and in chapter 23. So what does this look like on the ground? We don't have access to prophets living next to us as a king of Israel. We don't need them. But I'm glad you asked. Well, for the next eight weeks, we're going to pause our sermon series in 1 Samuel and still talk about Samuel but we're going to the Psalms because David wrote a number of Psalms concerning the events in chapters 21 to 23, which we're considering this morning. And so we're going to pause right here and then go in the Psalms and look at what trusting God looked like for David here, because it's in the Psalms that we get an insight into what life in the wilderness for David was like. These Psalms were written during a time of David being on the run where he is lamenting his situation and he is crying out to God for deliverance. But he's also expressing his profound hope in God, that God will keep him and protect him and act on his behalf.
And this is the hope we have as well. Two of these psalms were written while David was in the cave of Adullam. Psalm 57, Psalm 142, two of the psalms we'll be considering. Now, caves are associated with death in the Bible because caves often function as tombs. In Genesis 19.30, when Lot and his daughters thought the world had come to an end, where'd they go? They went to live in a cave. Well, David had been driven out of Saul's house, away from safety and security, utterly deprived of basic livelihood and necessities, and where'd he go live? In a cave. But though he lived in a cave, that would not be his permanent home. He was headed to the palace, and David, like Christ and like us, would soon rise from the grave. Leave the cave behind and take the throne. And that was his hope, and that was his confidence, which gave him grace to persevere even as he was on the run. So that's the first one. It's the first major theme of these chapters. David is on the run. Second major theme, Saul is on the hunt. Saul is on the hunt. From Nob, David heads off to the Philistine city of Gath in chapter 21. Which, if you remember, Gath was the city of Goliath. It was where Goliath was from. And we read in chapter 21 that Ahimelech, the priest, gave him the sword of Goliath when he was returning back to Gath. Perhaps he was thinking that Saul would not follow him into enemy territory. And if he did, he would have a weapon. But the Philistines are not only Saul's enemies, they're David's enemies as well. And the men of Achish know that he is coming, and they they know that he's the coming king of the land, as they call him, and they recite the very same song that is recited by the women that they sang over David in chapter 17. David has slain, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. His reputation is getting out. And he's taken into custody by the Philistines, and to get out, he acts deceptively. He acts crazy. He acts like a madman. He starts drooling. Now, in part to communicate that he is no serious threat to Achish or the Philistines, and in part, I think, to resemble Saul. Regardless of what happens, Achish decides to send him on his way. It's quite a bizarre scene. But David does, and we'll read about this very incident in one of the Psalms that we'll consider, and we'll see David exercising faith even as he does something so ridiculous to our eyes. In order to get out of Philistine custody, he basically puts on this dramatic performance that he's crazy. He's insane. He's slobbering. He's flailing about. He's trying to show them, you don't want me among you. I'm a, I'm a head case. I'm a problem. And it's kind of being wise as a serpent. And it's not necessarily that he, I mean, they don't, he doesn't owe the truth to them, but he does kind of act in this strange way in hopes that they will release him. And they do. But that doesn't stop Saul from hunting him down. In chapter 22, verse 6, we read, Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. And he's outraged. Look at chapter 22, verse 7, where we read Saul's words in response to this. Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? 
Saul appeals to their tribal loyalty. Surely the people would choose a fellow Benjaminite like Saul instead of this son of Jesse, this pretender to the throne from the tribe of Judah. This is Saul's ugly self-interest surfacing again. And it's contributing to the divisions in the tribe of Israel. He's showing partiality as a king. He's saying, these are my people. This is the real Israel right here. I don't want this nation unified. This is the real Israel. Hear that in our politics today? All over the place, right? These are my people, not these people. It's Saul-like behavior. It's as old as the monarchy. It isn't based on righteousness. It's kind of blood and soil nationalism. It's racism dressed up in an ethnic garb. Then he appeals to their self-interest as his people. He talks about all the things he will give to them if they follow him, not realizing that the only reason he's able to give these things to them is because he's already taken them. Which is exactly what Samuel said this king would do in 1 Samuel 8. He'll take and take and take and take. And then he'll use it as leverage to get you to do what he wants. He also points, paints himself as a victim. Claiming that all the people have conspired against him. Look at verse 8. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. No one discloses to me. No one is sorry for me. This is what ungodly leaders do. They talk about all they have done for the people to secure people's unmitigated loyalty to them. And then when they do not behave with that loyalty, they paint themselves as the victim. Here, hear how he responds when people tell him of David's whereabouts in chapter 23. Quote, Saul said, Oh, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Oh, you suffering Saul. You poor, poor Saul. Then Saul says, See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Manipulation. Fetching for facts and details. This is what the ungodly do to maintain control. They want to find out the goods. They want to find out what's going on in the underbelly so they can use it and leverage it for their own purposes. It's sick. It is Saul-like. Dear ones, please have eyes for it in your own heart and in the hearts of others. Do not be deceived by such things, by flattery. People come up to you, tell you they're the greatest thing since life bread. If somebody tells me that, I'm, 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 I'm leery. Oh, pastor, you're the greatest preacher I've ever heard in my life. No, I'm not. You need to listen to more sermons. And quit flattering me. It doesn't help me. And it's not good for you. Because I feel like I'm getting ready to get played. So we need to be leery of that. And be, be leery of the person who's always sinning against others, yet always plays the victim. It's never their fault. It's always somebody else's fault. That's Saul. Beware of someone who demands unmitigated loyalty from you, except the Lord Jesus, because he's not a king like the nations. 
Beware of someone who requires that everything be kept confidential between the two of you and that you be informed should you decide to disclose that. Now, I'm not talking about keeping legitimate confidences. Of course, those are necessary for good relationships. But I'm talking about Saul-like things here. Manipulating the story, changing the narrative so that he can get what he wants out of the people that he wants it from. Namely, David dead. Now, as Saul fishes for more information about David, no one's willing to give him that information. Why? Not trustworthy. And they don't like him. Except one who is equally as deceptive and evil, if not more so, than Saul himself. His name's Doeg. Now, I want you to look back at chapter 21, verse 7. We get this little offhanded comment that we don't understand if you're just reading it for the first time, but then comes to fruition in the next chapter. In chapter 21, verse 7, we read, as this is the scene where David is eating the bread that Ahimelech offers him, and his men are there. Well, guess who else is there? Doeg. The Edomite. Verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And he's overhearing all of this. Now what happens as we skip forward? Well, the men of Israel aren't willing to tell Saul of David's whereabouts. They're not willing to snitch on David. So Doeg the Edomite was all too ready and willing to offer the report he had heard. Look at chapter 22, verses 9 and 10. He's back with Saul again as one of his herdsmen, and we read the following. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. All true. He gives a faithful, true report that is utterly filled with self-interest, sin, and evil. When Saul learns from... So, by the way, you can tell the truth and still sin. Your motives for disclosing that kind of information is presence of evil or righteousness, not the mere thing that you said. Because sometimes when people say, well, it's true. I'm telling you the truth. But why are you telling the truth? To what end are you telling the truth? And are you telling the truth to someone it should be told to? So Saul learns here from Doeg that the priests have helped David. And so what does he do? Well, he summons the priesthood. He calls in Ahimelech who helped David to come to him to try to stamp out this right away. And what we read is in chapter 22, beginning at verse 11, then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, all of them came to the king. You can feel the tension growing, can't you? I can. It's, it's hard to read this. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword that have in, the, uh, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as it is this day? Whoa, 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 whoa. Saul, be careful. You're changing the narrative here. David's on the run from you. He's not pursuing you. But that's not the way he casts it. I'm the victim. The reason why David wants that sword is because he wants to kill me and you gave it to him. You gave bread to the one who wants to kill me and take my throne from me. See how the narrative's getting shifted here? It's not at all true. It's not at all what's happening. 
Verse 14, Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captured over your guard and honored in your house? In other words, Ahimelech saying, What problem do you have with David? He's never done anything to you. He's only helped you. He's only blessed you. He's your son-in-law. You gave him your daughter. Did you not see something good in him? He was the captain of your bodyguard. Do you not think he's interested in protecting you? Verse 15, is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to this his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. So again, this could have been why David initially lied to him, was to try to help him avoid being incriminated by Saul. Didn't work. Because Saul has his ways anyway. He's not interested in truth anyway. He's interested in what he can accomplish through his means of power. And he says in verse 16, the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guard and stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So no one is willing to unjustly kill the priests for Saul. Oh, but there's one who will. Look at verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, Doeg, you going to be loyal to me? Kill him. And he does. Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. He didn't just kill the priests, he killed people in the city. Men, women, kids, infants. How sick is this? Here is the terrible irony of all this story. A sign of how far Saul has fallen. Remember back in chapter 15 when God told Saul to conduct a holy War against the Gentile Amalekites for their sin. Yet Saul failed to complete that task and Samuel had to finish it. A priest. He spared the best of the sheep. Remember Saul left the sheep and cattle and he spared the king, Agag. However, now Saul tells a Gentile Edomite to conduct a unholy war against God and his priests. And what, what happens? Everything and everyone is killed. Saul was unwilling to carry out a just killing of the ungodly, all while being ready and willing to unjustly kill the godly. Because it's his kingdom he wants to advance, not God's. Whereas God commanded that Saul destroy the Amalekites because the Amalekites had been unfaithful to God, Saul takes it upon himself to destroy the priests, not because they had been unfaithful to God, but because they had been unfaithful to him. Saul has set himself up as Antichrist. As an Antichrist. One who demands that ultimate allegiance be given. He has set himself up in the place of God as all tyrants do. 
He's behaving as Antichrist, one who sets himself, as Psalm 2 says, against the Lord and against his anointed, David. That's a horrific picture of Saul's sinfulness. So we see David is on the run. Saul is on the hunt. Thirdly, God is on the move. God is on the move. Neither Saul nor David are the ultimate king in this story. (laughs) The ultimate king is the Lord, who is sovereignly on his throne, orchestrating this sinful mess to his glory and the ultimate exaltation of his anointed one David. And you say, Pastor Mark, how can God be sovereignly on his throne and permit the priesthood to be killed by Doeg like that? Well, remember 1 Samuel chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 3, what did God say would happen to Eli's family? This is the judgment of God on the priesthood. In addition to an expression of Saul's sinfulness. But you know the Bible well enough to know that's not contradictory. God uses the evil in the world to accomplish both in salvation and judgment His good purposes for His people. It's the way the cross happened. Because God permitted and ordained and decreed that evil men would put his son to death. And even though he was not the one, quote unquote, directly responsible for inciting all that, nevertheless, he is sovereign over it all and he is using it in such a way as to keep his hands completely clean, even as he kills his own son for our salvation and raises him from the dead three days later. So we see this fact that God is on the move, first of all, in chapter 22. Look at verse 20 to 23 of chapter 22. Chapter 22, verses 20 to 23. Notice. But one of the sons, this is right after Doeg kills the priesthood. What happens? Is this the end of the story? No. God's on the move. Even in the midst of of this wicked act. Verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, so he knew he was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Boy, what a radically different king David is from Saul. From Saul, you can't go anywhere where you're in safekeeping from him. Unless you're killing the people right in front of him. But not so with David. He says, hey, I'm persecuted. Join me. We'll be persecuted together. Sound like another king you know? We'll get there. Just as God allowed one of Ahimelech's sons to escape and flee to David, so God has already repeatedly allowed David himself to escape the clutches of Saul. The Lord is going to do it again and again in chapter 23. Chapter 23 begins with a Philistine attack. Notice how David responds. Now they told David, chapter 23, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Now notice how David is behaving. Even as David is being hunted for his own life, he is willing to risk his life for the people of Israel he has come to save. 
David is incredibly selfless here. He's acting as the Lord's anointed. He knows what his task is to defend Israel from its enemies. And he's behaving that way even while his life is under threat. Verse 3. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So David is consulting with the Lord before moving to rescue Keilah. And so he moves forward in confidence that the Lord will do just what he said. And so David consults the Lord again when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, arrives with the ephod. Notice verse 6 of chapter 22, or chapter 23. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with his ephod in his hand. Now the ephod was a priestly garment, part of the priestly garment. It was similar to the ark and that was a sign of God's presence. See, God had moved into the camp of David. Saul had slaughtered 85 men wearing the linen ephod, but now the ephod that symbolizes God's guidance rests with David because it got, it was escaped through Ahimelech's son and came to David, symbolizing that the kingdom is coming to David. So David seeks God's guidance again. And David's reliance on God's direction is so different from Saul's reliance on messengers and informants who were willing to disclose David's location. He never asks God, where is Saul? He always asks God, what would you have me to do now? Now Saul's on the hunt. Still in chapter 23, verses 7 and 8, we read, Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now when the Philistines attacked Keilah, David went to help and he became the city's savior. Saul, however, gathered his men to march to Keilah only after he had learned that David was there. So get this. The present king of Israel will not move on a Philistine attack on a city of his, but he will move when he finds out that the one who's taking his throne is there. A Philistine attack was not enough to motivate the current king of Israel. He was only willing to mobilize when he knew David was there. He won't leave his house to to attack a threat to the nation, but he will leave his house to to attack a threat to his rule of his nation. Doesn't sound like Saul cares a lick about the people. And he doesn't. He cares about himself. However, verse 9 tells us, David knew that Saul was plotting against him. And I want to say, you think? Yes, he is. Of course, he always is. But notice how he responds in verse 13 to 15. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah. And they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. Did you notice something? Saul was so, so certain that he wasn't getting out of that city. Gates, bars, keep him in. David escapes. How? God is on the move. God's not going to allow his anointed to be captured by Saul. But did you notice something else? Look again at verse 13. We read, Then David and his men who were about... 600. Now, look back at chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. 
David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So within the span of one chapter, allegiance to David has increased by one third. Did you notice David's army is growing, which means more and more people are beginning to follow the Lord's anointed. Men began gathering to him, forming a new core for a new Israel. More and more people were losing confidence in Saul and turning to David. Saul's officials will not tell him what is happening, nor carry out his orders. Yet now David is forming a royal court all around him. And the beginnings of the Davidic kingdom are taping, taking shape all around him, even as he's hunted in the wilderness. But notice the riffraff that's joining him. Verse 2. Everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him. David, that's not the most auspicious start for your kingdom, my brother. Oh, but it's the kind of kingdom God builds. The distressed, the fugitives, the malcontents. However, that's not all that's included in this group. David the king is in the group. Gad the prophet is in the group. Abiathar the priest is in the group. Opposed by Saul and surrounded by misfits, an alternate community is being made through the prophet, priest, and king of Israel. Does this not remind us of David's greater descendant? In Matthew 4, Jesus called 12 disciples, patterned after the 12 tribes of Israel, to form a new Israel. It was a group of misfits, a group of outcasts, fishermen, traders, tax collectors, terrorists. And that group of rejects extended his kingdom to the present known world of that time. According to Acts 17.6, they turned the world upside down. And the same pattern is replicated in the church in Corinth, where we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Just as David surrounded himself with a bunch of outcasts, so Jesus, praise the Lord, has surrounded himself with people like us. The destitute, the distressed, the sinners welcoming us, those whom the world rejects, and allowing us the privilege of sharing in his coming kingdom. And that's not only for David and the early church, but includes us as well. Were we not those who were in distress, in bondage to our sin with no way out? Were we not those who were in debt, suffocating under a penalty for sin that an eternity in hell couldn't pay off? Were we not those who were bitter in soul, afflicted by trials and tears? And then much like those in David's day, we gathered to him. Or rather, he gathered us. In all of our weaknesses and all of our failings to magnify his grace and shame the pride of the world. Are you weary and heavy laden this morning? Come to the son of David. He will take you. He will relieve your distress. He will pay your debt. He will save your soul. David's words to Abiathar couldn't, could be Jesus' own words to us where he says, stay with me, friend. Don't be afraid for the one who wants to take my life, wants to take your life. You'll be safe with me. 
And they took his life. And three days later, he took it back. And so he will take it back for everyone who is in union with him. And as we follow our king, we must remember that it will not be easy. We will suffer and we will be betrayed even as we seek to do good to others. At the end of chapter 23, beginning in verse 15, David moves to the desert of Ziph while Saul continues to pursue him. Again, the local people of Keilah, those he has helped in defeating the Philistines, what do they do? They betray David to Saul of their own initiative after he just saved their city. In a similar way, our Lord Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save. And yet, in that very act of betrayal, he confirmed that he was the true descendant of David. At the cross, he was condemned as an imposter to the throne, the king of the Jews, the mockery that hung above his head. Though Jesus, like David, had done so much good, those in authority, like Saul, sought to destroy him because of jealousy. Because of God's protection, however, their attempts did not harm Jesus ultimately, just like Saul's attempts to kill David were repeatedly thwarted. And even after his enemies succeeded in killing Jesus, God delivered him from the grave and exalted his anointed one. We will suffer with, like, and for Christ. But when we suffer, we can entrust ourselves to God. God is on the move in David's life, and he's on the move in Christ's life, and therefore he's on the move in our lives. 1 Samuel 23, 14 is as true for David as it is for us. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Verse 25 to 28 of chapter 23. Saul sent his men to seek him and David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David. But a messenger of Saul came saying, Hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul turned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. God has his ways of redirecting people away from you. Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 4. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Can you say that when you're all alone? No friends. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And even as Paul was abandoned, God was able to send people to help him. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, Paul says. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. You know, this is not the first time a Titus came. Jonathan reappears in the story at this point. He's dropped out for three chapters. We haven't really heard of him. But all of a sudden, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 23, Jonathan reappears. Why does he come? For one purpose, encourage David. Look at verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish. That's about a 30-mile travel. And strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. He's not going to be there. Spoiling the story for those of you who don't know it. He's not going to make it. It's the last conversation they'll ever have that we know about. Saul, my father, also knows this. Sandwiched between two stories of betrayal, 
is the re- one with Saul and one with Keilah is the return of one who had dropped out of the narrative altogether, Jonathan. Saul's son, David's loyal friend. And yet here he arrives for the sole purpose of helping David to find strength in God, reminding him that his kingdom will be established. And dear ones, is this not our job for each other in the church? As we make our way through this wilderness filled with trials, filled with betrayal, filled with good intentions gone bad, what do we need from each other? Most fundamentally, you don't need to be told, well, I hope you're having a good day. You need to have your hand strengthened in God. And how is your hand strengthened in God? By reminding you from another brother or sister that the kingdom of Christ will be and is being established in your life. If that doesn't encourage you, you're off kilter with the will of God for your life. Because everything is serving that end. It is serving the end of the establishment of the reign and kingdom of Christ in your life. And that should be what's encouraging to you the most. Not that the suffering's going to go away next week, but that, the, that in heaven you will be in the kingdom of Christ. And the kingdom of Christ is advancing now, even through your situation that makes zero sense to you. This is our job for each other, to strengthen each other's hands in God, to remind each other daily that God's kingdom in Christ will be established and our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So hold on, don't give up, don't defect. And as we do this, we serve as an oasis in the wilderness for each other, even as our ultimate hope is in the Lord. We read in chapter 23, verse 29, the very last verse, David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. The word in Gedi comes from a word meaning spring, a, a well-watered place, an oasis in the wilderness, a place of refreshment and rejuvenation. David had to flee from Saul away from the fertile promised land into the wilderness. And yet even in the wilderness, much like God did for the people of Israel, the Lord fed him with heavenly bread and provided him a spring of water in the desert. And after Israel was delivered from Pharaoh and they sang in victory as Pharaoh's army was drowned in the sea, we read in Exodus fifteen twenty seven. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Dear ones, it might feel like this life in the wilderness is just a slog. It is not a slog. You have prayer. You have the church of the living God. You have people who will come alongside you to strengthen your hand in God and remind you of that. This is why church membership is so important. So that you have a network of people who are committed to your spiritual well-being. And we get these temporary oases in the desert. Like David and Jesus before us, all of us as God's people, we're all enrolled in Wilderness University. And yes, the classes are hard. But the professor is amazingly gracious. And you get lots of bathroom breaks along the way. Sometimes we can be tempted to think the Christian life's just one big hard cross after another. It's just all hard work, no play. All trial, no triumph. All jarring, no joy. Well, Elim and Engedi remind us that the Christian life is not entirely a desert. There are oases along the way. So while God is on the move and He is with us, there is encouragement in the wilderness. We drink from Him. We eat from Him. We are sustained as the body of Christ by, with, and for each other in the church of the living God. So don't lose heart. I want to close with this reminder. God often plans His kindnesses to you well in advance of when you actually experience them. Did you notice something in chapter 22? 
verses 3 and 4, well, you probably didn't notice it because I never read them. But if you read in advance, you may have realized something about this. Notice verses 3 and 4. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. Let's just, just stop there. David got any history with Moab? Yes. David goes to the king of Moab. Why does he go to king of Moab? Because he's arranging care for his older parents to keep them safe while he's on the run. Jesse's old now. His wife's old now. He's arranging care for his parents. Now you know why Jesus said on the cross, behold your mother. That didn't come out of nowhere. That came because the son of David is a pattern after David who cares for his ailing parents when he's gone. So David goes to the king of Moab to arrange care for his parents. And then David's, remember, great-grandmother, Ruth, was from Moab. David's Moabite heritage might have aided him in finding sanctuary for his aging parents. Doesn't this put a new light on the events in the book of Ruth? Naomi's trial, the death of her husband and her sons, the fear of poverty, the destitution they have experienced, Ruth's consistent faithfulness, Boaz's intervention, all that formed the backdrop. The entire book of Ruth formed a backdrop so that David's old parents would have a place to stay. Naomi never could have imagined, call me Mara for my life is bitter. Oh, centuries from now, you're going to be thankful that you're a Moabite, that you have Moabite relationships here with Ruth. Naomi never could have imagined that over a century later, God would still be accomplishing good for her descendants through her difficult trials. And such will be the case for your life. Hundreds and hundreds of years from now, if the Lord tarries, he will still be accomplishing things through your life on earth that he intended. But his kindnesses were just well in advance. God would still be accomplishing good for the descendants of Ruth and Naomi through the difficult trials of David. And God directed those circumstances long in advance to bring a ray of relief to David in his distress. And that's not something he just does for David. All the while, God is on the move, and so he is with us. So there's encouragement in the wilderness, I hope. We have a glorious future. The cross comes before the crown, but the crown is coming. And that helps us endure the cross. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for these Old Testament narratives of the way in which you worked in the life of your people so that we can learn how you continue to work. You are the same. You're not a God that you lie, nor the Son of Man that you change your mind. You speak and you act, you promise and you fulfill. We thank you for your faithfulness to David. We thank you that you preserved his life so that you could preserve a Messiah for us. Lord, that's the ultimate reason you're saving David's life is so that he could ascend to the throne and be the king that you have appointed from the tribe of Judah so that from his line, the king of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David from the tribe of Judah would come to reign. And Lord, that's the reason you spare our lives in this world because you're bringing your kingdom and you want us to be a part of it. Help us to lean into that in our personal lives, in our family lives, in our church, in our work, in every place you send us. May we, like David, live with faith. May we not try to be like Saul 
trying to carve out our own little kingdom here and using whatever we can get out of this world and everybody we can use to get it. Lord, forgive us for any Saul-like tendencies that still remain in our own sinful hearts. But we thank you that we bask in the banner of your grace and we live under the banner of Christ's cross and resurrection and you have accepted us. You've relieved us from our distress. You've forgiven our debt and we are the grateful children of you who have been gathered to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We would ever live in submission and loyalty to you, Jesus. Keep us for yourself. Use us faithfully, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.